You're listening to Lozano Smith's podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies. Welcome and thank you for joining us today to discuss marijuana, students, schools, what the status of the law is, what the the latest and greatest developments are. I'm your host today, Sloan Simmons, a partner out of Lozano Smith's Sacramento office. I'm one of the firm's co-practice group leaders in litigation and spend the rest of my time doing student issues. Um, I'm excited to have with us today and to, to to fully elucidate and inform us on uh, the issues that we're going to discuss, two of our, our best student and special ed attorneys in the firm. Amy Perry is one of our firm's co-practice group leaders in the student area, has specialized in students and special ed for a very long time. I think we've almost known each other for over a decade now, Miss Perry. Right. Thanks for being here. Thank you. And then Miss Allie Bivens, who's also in the special education and student area. She is one of our firm's co-practice group leaders in special ed, uh, a graduate of Duke's Law School, and after a few years in the federal courts working with one of our Sacramento district court judges, has been with us for several years now. And uh, we're honored to have Allie here this afternoon, too. How are you, Allie? Good. Thank you for having me here, Sloan. Um, do, I, I brought in one of our, one of our uh, employees happened to have a lighter on them. I brought it in. I thought maybe I would like do the little lighter sound by the microphone. But at the risk of causing a fire with all the papers we have in front of us, I won't do that today. <laughs> um, these two have presented on this area um, to various groups statewide, including a webinar um, that was heard statewide here for Lozano Smith. Um, and so they have discussed this topic of marijuana and students and its, its most dramatic and central crossover into the special education area um, on multiple occasions. So this will be an exciting discussion as developments continue to come up. And uh, let's start with, uh, how about a description of just kind of what marijuana is? as a starting point. Yeah, so I think, you know, when we did the first Food for Thought, we kind of just jumped right into the state of the law, and a lot of people didn't have an understanding of what marijuana actually is. And so I think it's kind of important to understand that marijuana is made up of different cannabinoids. Uh, two of those, the most popular... So pause pause with me. Cannab- yes. Cannabinoid? Correct. All cannabinoids. Right. Those are the chemical compounds that make up marijuana. Oh, okay. And um, the two most common that everyone is pretty familiar with is CBD, which is kind of the one that's getting the most hype right now. Um, It's found in a lot of the rubs and the oils. It does not produce a high or an intoxicating effect, um, but has uh, a medicinal component to it that, you know, creates um, lessening pain, essentially, is kind of what CBD is seen as. And then THC is the other cannabinoid that's pretty popular, and that is the cannabinoid that causes the high in the marijuana plant. So uh, what we've found through our research is that what it seems to indicate is that you really need multiple chemical compounds of the marijuana plant for it to really act properly. Um, but we're going to be talking about Epidiolex later on, and that's um, a new FDA-approved drug that is just a CBD-based drug. And so Currently. You, you, you say that the CBD is one where there's the most focus. And I would, I would just ask, just to clarify, in the school context, mm-hmm. right, this use, potential use in school, and I know you two are going to talk about later whether or not 
it's permissible at all, preview no, for kids to be using THC. And maybe I'm wrong with that, but the, the, the component of marijuana that actually causes some degree of um, intoxication, or that's probably not mm-hmm. the right word, inhebriation. Um, but the CBD oils you're saying is, is the main focus in the, the legal use of marijuana with students? is That seems to be the most popular. I mean, you see a lot of the CBD-based compounds, which again are the rubs, the, you know, it's oils, it's being put into cooking oils, it's being put into gummies. And um, I just saw an ad the other day where Carl's Jr. is talking about putting CBD into hamburgers now, potentially, trying to get ahead of the curve. So... You know, um, it's it's the one that is getting a lot of the hype, and it, it's probably because it doesn't create the high, and so it's very socially accepted, um, seen medicinally, I would probably say. Yeah, and something that we'll talk about is a case, that, a special education case that came out of Rankin Valley Union School District, and in that case, um, we'll get into more of the details, but the student actually had two different medications, one um, that contained only CBD, to control her seizures and one that was high in THC to stop the seizures. And the medication that had the THC is actually the only medication that worked to stop a seizure once it started. And so I think it's more common to see, I think we've had more parents asking to send their kids to school after having taken some sort of CBD gummy or something like that. But medications or any sort of, you know, cannabis-based substance that parents are asking for their kids to be allowed to take at school, it might include THC. So, Allie, let's, to build up to the more recent decisions in this area, can you, you know, kind of lay some of that groundwork, the foundation of state and federal laws that have existed for long times up to the most recent enactments, both at the state and federal level? Yep. So um, the most, we'll start off with the Controlled Substances Act of 1970. I don't think we need to go much further beyond that. But that um, is really what started, what put made marijuana illegal by putting it on Schedule 1 of the Controlled Substances Act. And so anything on Schedule 1 is what um, the FDA has determined to have a high potential for abuse and no currently accepted medical use. Um, And so that's something that additionally we'll talk about in terms of some recent statements from the FDA and what they have said about about marijuana. So when we're talking about a Schedule 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 drug, that's all driven by federal law in this act? Exactly. So um, the Controlled Substances Act, and again, as... um, As many of you know, federal law supersedes state law. And so if something is illegal under federal law, then it is also illegal under state law, even if a state has legalized that particular substance. So as of right now, marijuana remains on Schedule 1 of the Controlled Substances Act. And even though several states have um, made it legal under state law, marijuana is still illegal completely under federal law. The difference is is that in 1970 and up until recently, the federal government was actually prosecuting cases um, of marijuana possession and sale in states um, where marijuana is legal. 
I think the difference that we're seeing now is that the federal government isn't necessarily prosecuting those cases. So even though it's still illegal under federal law, um, for various reasons, they're the federal prosecutors are not prosecuting those cases. Allie, what about the, from time to time you hear districts will ask, well, you know, they're getting questions in this area from the special ed context. And again, I know we're going to eat, you're both going to go into that in a lot greater detail. Um, But what about the Safe and Drug-Free Schools and Communities Act? How does that interact with this kind of landscape of, of federal laws? So basically that is a federal law and that provides federal, so the Safe and Drug-Free Schools and Communities Act of 1994 provides federal grants to public schools and all public schools get federal money from the federal government. And in order to receive that federal money, you have to comply with the Safe and Drug-Free Schools Act, which says that schools will provide drug-free environments. And so we haven't actually seen any school that has allowed marijuana onto their campus lose federal funding because of this. Um, But that is one of the risks that we advise our clients about and is, even though we have not seen it happen, that if a school violates the Drug-Free Schools Act by not having a drug-free environment, um, that they could risk losing federal funding. So, Amy, Allie's talking about the, the initial Controlled Substances Act from 1970. Then we've got this, this Safe Schools Type Act from 1994. Has there been any movement legis- from a legislative perspective from the federal level in recent memory? Not necessarily. I mean, the most that we've seen is, you know, the memos that have come out saying kind of what Ali was alluding to, which is we're not going to be prosecuting this stuff um, that much federally speaking. And statewide, we did have some movement from the legislature last year and this year with pending bills related to marijuana. Um, I wanted to note when you were speaking about the Controlled Substances Act, just kind of for context for people, that when we're talking about marijuana being a Schedule One, it's up there with other drugs like heroin, LSD, ecstasy, and those sorts of drugs. And, um, you know, it's just, it's interesting that it's classified similarly with those drugs, given uh, the noted medical benefits and limited, uh, purported limited, you know, abuse from students or from individuals taking it. And the inability allegedly to overdose on marijuana is something that is commonly spoken about when people are looking at cannabis use when it's compared to other schedule ones. Well, I was there, I know, you know, we're now under a, a new presidential administration than we had back in, in uh, 2014 or, or through 2016, dating back to 2008. Wasn't there some type of legislative um, amendment that, that kind of limited what, you know, Ali was talking about federal law preempting state law that restrained the Department of Justice in some way in terms of enforcing federal law relative to marijuana? Are you speaking about the writer? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So there was um, a writer that came out in 2014 where, you know, again, essentially what they were saying is, when we're looking at this, it was Congress saying there's the Robacher-Farr Amendment, um, and that was kind of looking at the Department of Justice and their appropriations and the money spent there, and saying that, you know, states have authorized use and distribution and all this sort of jazz as it relates to medical marijuana. 
Um, and essentially they set aside and said, you know, don't really prosecute those sorts of things. And when you say rider for, for our audience, so the, the federal government is going to adopt a big appropriations bill where they are, are divvying out money to a whole bunch of different purposes and departments. And that rider is an amendment, something that rides on the back of that bill is an amendment to it. Uh, that in itself has the power of law once the appropriation bill is adopted. And so within that amendment, a rider is the, the changes that, that, that Amy just noted. And what yeah. they were essentially saying is, you know, for those individuals within the states where it is legal, if they are strictly complying with the law, you should not be prosecuting them. So that would impact, Ali, so would like what were the existing California laws as of 2014? So existing California law as of 2014, we had um, the Compassionate Use Act, and that actually was passed in 1996, and that protects um, ill Californians in using medical marijuana, not recreational marijuana, but that existed in 2014. And so basically what the writer was saying is that Congress passed this legislation that provided, um, as they do every year, that provides funds for the Department of Justice. And what the writer said is that you cannot use these funds to prosecute people who are under strict compliance of state law. So at that time, 2014, if someone was in strict compliance with the Compassionate Use Act, then they couldn't, federal prosecutors couldn't prosecute um, that individual in California if they're complying with California law regarding medical marijuana. So they had a, um, so they had a medical marijuana card and it was, um, it was given to them through a recommendation by a doctor um, things like that. And so that um, is, that's what that writer was saying. But some federal prosecutors actually did prosecute individuals in states where medical marijuana is legal. And that led to a Ninth Circuit case, it was called U.S. v. McIntosh, which said that a defendant has the opportunity to prove that they're in strict compliance with the state law. So in California, that'd be the Compassionate Use Act. And then if they do prove that, um, then the federal prosecutors would drop the case. So uh, for better or worse, I think we in our audience would fully agree that uh, the change from the Obama administration to the Trump administration has led to a, a number of changes. Were there changes in terms of the federal government's view of, of uh, prosecution of marijuana-related offenses despite state law under the, the, the current administration? I would say yes and no, and I'll say that for a couple of reasons. So first, this writer that we've been talking about was initially passed in 2014, but it has since been passed with every spending bill that has come oh, before Congress. So that writer currently still applies. Um, something that you alluded to earlier were some memos that were issued during the Obama administration. And to put it simply, the memos said, the memos were to um, US attorneys throughout the United States who you know prosecute federal crimes and said, we're not gonna use, um, the first memo basically said, we're not gonna use federal prosecution money to prosecute ill, Ill individuals who are using medical marijuana. Um, and then there was another memo that came out that said, we're gonna focus federal resources on essentially large scale marijuana operations. So large scale, um, growing farms or some sort of um, 
if there's some sort of tie to violence or sale to children, that sort of thing, focusing on that rather than personal individual use, whether that be recreational or medical. So those memos were issued by the Obama administration. Um, When the Trump administration came to power, there wasn't an immediate change. But then um, in January 2018, that's when recreational marijuana became available for purchase in California, right? We passed it in California, passed that law, um, Proposition 64, in November 2016, but you couldn't actually go to a dispensary and buy recreational marijuana until January 2018. So a few days after that is when Jeff Sessions and the Trump administration came out with their memo. The then current attorney general. Yeah, the then current attorney general who said, no, those Obama-era memos are gone. We um, are not following them anymore. Those memos that said we're not going to focus on ill individuals and we're not going to focus, we are going to focus on large-scale operations, sale to children, those sorts of things. Um, He wiped out those memos. Um, And so basically that kind of, that was a sign that perhaps the federal government is getting tough on pot again. But Congress did not, you know, follow suit with the executive branch because Congress continues to attach that rider to funding bills. Interesting. Amy, so so that's kind of, it seems to me, a good lay of the land from a federal law perspective. Mm -hmm. What, um, and Allie's talked a little bit about the Compassionate Use Act, what other enactments um, have are at play in this area in California. Yeah, so when we're looking at California law, we still have the Compassionate Use Act, which allows for medical marijuana to be in existence, and it does still exist. And Ali said before, you know, we have the medical recommendation, and it's an important distinction. It's not a prescription for medical marijuana. It's just a recommendation because as we're going to get into and Allie kind of discussed, it's still marijuana, generally speaking, is still a Schedule One drug. And so it can't be prescribed. It's still an illegal substance. Are there any age limitations under the Compassionate, Compassionate Use Act? There are not. Yeah. And that's an important distinction as well. Um, for the most part, when we're thinking about students, uh, they are holding medical cards still. Uh, because they are under the age of 21, the Prop 64 is for recreational use for 21 and above. Um, And so, you know, for the most part in our K-12 districts, we're not looking at students 21 years and older using recreational marijuana to the extent that they're using, they have that medical recommendation or they should. Um, That should be the kind of the the primary basis for their medical use of the marijuana. we have, you know, a couple of different statutes that we're going to get into and, in, you know, as it relates to discipline and medication on campus. And then um, there's also a bill pending before the legislature that could possibly allow students to take uh, cannabis at school as well. So what about the good old education code, which all of us deal with on a daily basis? What does it say uh, as it relates to marijuana or controlled substances in general? It says just generally that it's a disciplinable offense to, you know, be under the use, possession, sale, um, any of those items, you know, that you're doing. It's it's definitely an offense for which you could be suspended or expelled for. Right. And for sale would have to be expelled. Right. So a sale Mm -hmm. of any controlled substance, mandatory immediate suspension by superintendent principal, mandatory recommendation for expulsion. 
And then if it gets to the board and the board finds it's occurred, then a mandatory expulsion with flexibility, obviously, as to how they want to handle the term of that expulsion, whether or not they want to suspend that expulsion. But so that that remains unchanged in uh, regardless of the, the various federal and, mm-hmm. and state law changes we've seen. Yeah. And I think it's something that our clients have really struggled with. A lot of the phone calls that we get normally stem from parents telling the district my student is going to be coming to school under the influence and, um, you know, because they're taking this medication at home. Um, and, you know, clients not knowing whether and what they should do. Uh, they're not seeing the student take the marijuana. They can't necessarily tell if the student is, quote unquote, high as it relates to the to the use. Again, potentially because the student has taken maybe a straight form of CBD as opposed to, you know, some sort of gummy or, you know, it could even be smokable. That does include the THC component. So the student could appear to be completely, you know, not high, but they could be under, quote unquote, under the influence of marijuana Mm -hmm. because they do have that cannabinoid in their system. I want to talk about the administration of medication at schools and then these more recent OAH decisions to really, which I think kind of flushes it out because it's as a someone who's unfamiliar myself with some of the terminology, I think those cases make it easier to understand Mm -hmm. kind of some of these technical things. But I'll ask the classic question. It is okay, right, if I'm 17, 18, and I've got a medical marijuana card, I can come to school as high as a kite, and you can't discipline me, right, because I've got a medical marijuana card. We would say that you could be disciplined. It's still a disciplinable offense. It's still a Schedule One drug. You're still under the influence, and you're on campus. Now, whether or not you... Bummer, dude. Bummer, dude. You know, but this is, again, something that districts are struggling with. You know, do you want to treat all students equally regardless of what they're taking the marijuana for? Is there a distinction of a student who's, you know, getting high in the parking lot as opposed to an autistic student who's using medical marijuana at school, you know, possibly during the school day when their parent checks them in and out to give them their drops midday, a student with ADHD, you know, student with cerebral palsy, autism. I mean, it just... Well, but I do, I think by the, I'm hoping that by the time we're done chatting here today, there'll be some clear kind of framework and guidelines for that. Because to me, it's just as an initial reaction to the extent we're talking about usage that is intended for a medical purpose. I mean, that to me is the first tier of distinct distinction, right? Mm -hmm. The student who simply is smoking a bowl so he can get through chemistry on Monday morning is in a much different place in terms of the law and the equities than a student who's taking CBD oils to avoid seizures. But I know there's probably some committed pot smokers who might disagree with that. So when we're talking about that, you know, whether or not there's that bright line between the student who's getting high in the bathroom and the student who's coming onto campus and is using, you know, Epidiolex or a different CBD or THC-based drug for their epilepsy, I think that the the issue that we would see is whether or not there would be any, you know, basis for a discrimination claim for the student who is, you know, in fact smoking a joint in the in the restroom. They could say, you know, I have, you know, glaucoma, I have ADHD, this helps me and I, you know, in fact need to be taking my medication, aka, you know, a blunt in the bathroom at school. And so you're discriminating against me on the basis of my disability as well. So we see that more as an ADA 504 type issue? I think that's generally where we would see that sort of complaint, you know, and you kind of get into this 
point where you're saying this disability or this medical condition is more valid. And so we're going to allow, you know, students who have epilepsy and autism to have cannabis at school right now and not students who have ADHD. And, you know, if they're going through cancer treatment and they have, you know, nausea as it relates to that, there's other, you know, FDA approved nausea drugs, take those instead. And so I think it's just this, you know, real slippery slope for districts right now you know, if they're looking at discipline for cannabis, how they are treating it, should it be uniform or should they be treating students differently based on the condition and the use and the purpose? Amy, if you're not going to do it, I will. You're talking about a very hazy area in the law. Uh, Medication administration, right? We've had those laws on the books for some time now, right? Mm -hmm. How's that work in California? Right. So um, medication administration, the ed code is 49423. And under that ed code, if you have, if a student brings in a prescription um, and meets all of the requirements of 49423, um, then the district has to provide um, that, that medication at school if the student needs it. Um, This is something that comes into play with medical marijuana in a couple of different ways. So first, what the Ed Code requires is a prescription. And as we've talked about, under the Compassionate Use Act in California, what what a doctor can provide is a recommendation, which is different from a prescription. Um, The reason why why a doctor can't provide a prescription for marijuana is because cannabis is on Schedule 1 of the Controlled Substances Act, and doctors cannot provide prescriptions for any substance in Schedule 1 of the Controlled Substances Act. Um, But there is a caveat here now, as of about late um, 2018, when Epidiolex, a new drug, was both approved by the FDA and a portion of Schedule 5 was rewritten to incorporate Epidiolex. And so now Epidiolex can be prescribed by a medical doctor. Medical doctor can provide an actual prescription, not just a recommendation. So so this particular drug, Epidiolex, did I get that kind of close? (laughs) Epidiolex, Epidiolex. Mm -hmm. Um, We're not talking Schedule 2, Schedule 3, Schedule 4. It's all the way back on 5 as opposed to marijuana on 1. Yeah, exactly. So Schedule 5 is you have something like Tylenol with codeine. It's one step above, you know, over-the-counter medication, something that you would get when you get your wisdom teeth pulled. Um, And so that is where they've moved this specific drug, but the way that the DEA rescheduled it is that they said they put placed on Schedule 5 FDA-approved drugs that contain CBD derived from cannabis and no more than 0.1% THC. So at this point, Epidiolex is the only FDA-approved drug that contains marijuana, that contains cannabis. That's, and s- that's under that limit. Correct. Oh. It's right. the only FDA-approved straight cannabis-based drug with only 0.1%. Are there others trying to get in the mix? I have to assume that there's... There are, and there are two yeah. synthetic versions of cannabis-based drugs that are also um, currently FDA-approved, but these are containing CBD from cannabis as opposed to synthetic 
marijuana. All right, pot pro. What is? What do you mean by that? Synthetic? I honestly, I am not a scientist, so I won't yeah. pretend to understand. But yeah. I know that they've just derived and created synthetic versions of marijuana okay. um, in the lab setting. Is the view that is there a view that the synthetics are not as effective as the non-synthetics? I think that there's a view out there in large part that a drug like Epidiolex with only a 0.1% of THC is not super effective for the majority of people. Um, the synthetic versions right now, I believe at least one of them is used for the nausea and pain as it relates to like late stage cancer patients and cancer patients going through chemo. Um, those ones, the FDA purported to say they're effective. And they're approved. They approved them. They're FDA mm-hmm. approved. Correct. I think what's, um, you know, and we've talked to some people who are more knowledgeable about this than we are, but would say that the synthetic, the synthetic THC that has been created in a lab, the isolated THC is not necessarily as effective for certain people as the whole plant. And so there's something for certain individuals, whether it's treating epilepsy, nausea, chronic pain, there's something about the whole plant and the dozens of cannabinoids that are in there working together that make it effective. So people have said that the synthetic THC isolate, which is made in a lab, doesn't have the same therapeutic benefits as the whole plant and the natural THC. And they're saying, you know, the studies that are coming out, essentially the the different cannabinoids interact harmoniously and your receptors, your, you know, intracannabinoid system that they recently discovered, I believe it's in the last 20 years or so, they're seeing that you have to have CBD and THC, they're finding high medicinal components to it, but they have to work together. So if you're speaking of a cancer patient, there's a component of the, you know, CBD and THC. One works to allegedly assist in killing off of the cancer cells. The other works for anti-nausea, pain, uh, stimulating appetite, and that sort of thing. They work in conjunction and isolating it and providing just sole THC or just CBD or any, you know, dronabin oil or whatever it is. It's not as effective. Thank you for those blunt comments, Amy, about synthetics. That That is helpful uh, uh, to put this this whole map together. So we've talked about the medication administration statutes on the Ed Code, the Ed Code's disciplinary provisions, big enactments at the state and federal level. Um, let's walk us up through the OAH decisions because I think when it's all said and done, and I'd like to hear from both of you guys about this, the real heart of where this issue is at the forefront is in the special education IDEA 504 context and in particular in relation to epilepsy. So maybe kind of lay the framework as to where we're seeing this and why, and then lead us through where, where OAH and, and uh, other authorities have landed on the issue. Yeah, so there was a case um, in 2014, it was a Sylvan Union school district case wherein uh, a school district had essentially referenced the student's use of CBD oil in the IEP, um, and the student had filed for due process um, saying, you know, that the district had to administer this medication for the student at school. OEH came out and said, absolutely not. And, you know, they said, we're not going to turn a blind eye under the guise of what's called stay put in a special education setting. So if you have an IEP that's been consented to and implemented when you're contesting it, stay put can apply. So whatever was in that IEP continues. 
um, and we're not going to require the school district to continue to do this if it's unlawful. So was our epi epidemiolex in existence yet? No. Um, Perhaps in in clinical studies, clinical but studies, not but available. Not approved, right? Yeah. And I remember this decision just faintly because from time to time. Um, I'd lean on uh, SPED attorney expertise from folks like you guys to answer this question for, for clients. But wasn't there also an issue in terms of the notion that the only way a minor could receive those, receive the, the marijuana-based medication or the, the, receive the marijuana to use it would be through a recommendation mm-hmm. And a, the limitation on nurses for administering medication that's mere recommendation as opposed to prescription. Yeah, the previous EDCO provisions wouldn't have allowed for the administration of that medication. But in this case, I believe that the district was, in fact, administering it. It was the county that came forward later on after a couple of months and said, hey, that's illegal. Right. So even though the Compassionate Use Act was in place, it sounds like this student likely had the recommendation, which is kind of the basis here. And this is a lot of speculation because it wasn't in the decision, all this context, but the district was doing it, I believe. And then the, the county came in and said that you can't do that. It's illegal. And then they stopped. And that's when kind of all of this kind of evolved. And it would have been illegal both under federal law and because of the student's age under California law. Would that be the idea? It would have been federally illegal as it was. It's still a, right. a schedule one right. state law not permissible as it's still a schedule one drug there's not a prescription so you can't administer that medication on campus got it got it so roll us forward to the much publicized rincon valley case yeah so the rincon valley case was a real departure from the previous 2014 decision um in this case ali kind of spoke about it previously there was a student who required two different cannabis-based medications uh, one was CBD dominant, uh, one was a combination of THC and CBD, so both cannabis-based medications, one being her kind of routine dose of the CBD-based drugs, and then the THC. And the routine dose intended to? Just keep her at a baseline in terms of not having seizures or not having as many seizures. Okay. Um, and then the THC drug that had CBD in it as well as her rescue medication, as Allie indicated earlier. And so that student um, had previously been in preschool, had been receiving medication or access to that medication in a private preschool. District was funding that preschool setting through her IEP. Um, And when she went to transition into kindergarten, the district said, we can't do that here because it's federally illegal. So we're going to go ahead and give you a home program. And that's when that case fell apart. The student filed for due process and OH came out and said, essentially through a very long opinion that discussed a lot of the California law and the state of everything here saying you can absolutely do this and you're now ordered to do it. Uh, Was there, you know, I know you guys poured over that decision in great detail. What jumped out at you in the Rincon Valley case? It was interesting how... The analysis really delved into whether or not the nurse could keep the medication on her person, saying that she was a caretaker um, and things like that. But it really jumped out to us, jumped out to us because it is still federally illegal. Um, and these are not medications that were, you know, have been, you know, that a student can have a prescription for. Um, it's a medical recommendation. It was very clear from the decision that the student needed them to be able to go to school. Right. 
uh, as Ali had alluded to, there are certain types of epilepsy that don't respond to traditional meds or that they respond initially and then they stop working. And for whatever reason, cannabis has been something that has continued to work for these uh, children. So, you know, ALJ Marson is known as one of the best and longest tenured ALJs in California when it comes to special ed. It seemed to me, just glazing over the decision, because it's very detailed and lengthy, um, you know, the, the question that arose that arises for me is, how did, how did Marson address this prohibition under federal law and Schedule 1 for, for marijuana to the extent that the IDA itself is a federally enacted law? So, Ali, how did, how did he cross that bridge? So one of the things that he looked at is something that we've talked about is the fact that um, the federal government would not be is not prosecuting these cases. So something that he discussed is if the student um, who had the medical recommendation and her caregiver, so her parent and her nurse, were in compliance with California law, then there was no risk of them being prosecuted for for having the medication, having her take the medication on campus. Um, Something that I think the judge failed to address is that the school, in the school context, the school is not necessarily worried about the nurse or the child or the parent being prosecuted by the federal government. The school was, was not saying that that's what was at risk of happening. I think what the concern was is we receive federal funding. This is illegal under federal law. We're wary to allow this to occur, allow a knowing violation of federal law to occur. Um, but judge, if you order us to do it, we'll do it. That's a different. That put puts us in a different legal position. Have we seen subsequent OAH decisions? Um, since Rincon Valley, or is the sense that based upon the Rincon decision that parents who may want to administer, and I know I want us to come back to Epidiolex. Epidiolex. Ah, <laughs> I'll get it one of these times, um, how that interacts here. But do you have a sense that maybe this issue continues to pop up, if not as much as it did previously, but more frequently, but that because of the Rincon decision, that is a legal basis on which school districts are simply saying, okay, we'll do it, consistent with Rincon. I would say, um, so I think there's a couple of things going on. I know um, that at least a few parents who are um, whose children take these type of medication have gone to their school districts with the Rincon decision and said, hey, you weren't allowing my child to take um, the cannabis-based medication at school. Here's this decision. Now you are. Now I'm requesting that you allow my child to take this medication at school. The schools are still in a legal conundrum, essentially, because one, that OAH decision is binding only on Rincon Valley. It's not binding on any other school district. It is persuasive authority, but you still have the Controlled Substances Act, which is binding on everyone in the United States and every school in the United States, and 
the Drug-Free Schools Act, which is also binding on every school in the United States, which that accepts federal funding, which is every public school in the United States. And I think, too, you also have the 2014 decision out there that still says you can't you can't be administering cannabis. Right. And yeah. so both of them being non-binding, you have a district you can choose kind of which one you want to go with. Yeah. And also to point out that ju- the judge from the 2014 decision is also still at OAH, along with Judge Marzen, the judge from um, the 2018 decision. So essentially a school district doesn't know what's going to happen mm-hmm. if they get a case like this. Um, and so... I think our advice has has been to, that this is illegal in the most conservative approach is not allowing um, med- medical marijuana to be on campus while also recognizing that, you know, we are compassionate people and as our, our clients are as well and that sometimes you have a student who realistically cannot attend school without this medication. Right. What do you do? In that circumstance, and so I think if if you as a school district administrator have this come across your desk, it's a serious conversation that you're going to have to have with your board and with your attorney about next steps because there really isn't, because of these dichotomies in the law, there's not necessarily a clear answer. I think that there are workarounds for school districts, and we've you know worked with clients that have had parents come forward and request um, administration because that's really the crux of the issue right now kind of the current state of the law or the current state of what's happening for these families that are using cannabis-based medications for their students is that they're administering at home and they may or may not be pulling out their student midday to administer you know in the parking lot or across the street and then taking them back midday we also have other cases where parents are waiting in the parking lot with these rescue medications um, waiting for their student to have a seizure that is, you know, doesn't stop and that they need to administer it. And then they come onto campus and administer it on behalf of the student. Because again, in the Rincon case, the nurse was the one that was carrying it and administering mm-hmm. it. And that was, you know, in the previous IEP and what the judge ordered for this case. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a lot that's going on, but there are, you know, districts that are looking at this through the lens of, should we file for due process? Should we wait for the parent to file for due process and receive an order? As Ali said, you know, different clients have different viewpoints and different needs as it relates to, um, you know, whether or not they are essentially for or against allowing the use of, of medical marijuana on campus. Does epidemiologics and its approval, FDA approval, does it, how much pressure does it relieve from this situation or is it still... Sure, that covers a bunch of students that maybe can use that, but there's such a wide range of further different or alternative marijuana-based products, and some of which with the THC may be perceived correctly or incorrectly by parents as being the best option for their child. Is Do we, do we see the FDA signing off on epidiolex and putting it on schedule five relieving some of that pressure or is it still it's, it's going to be the same tension ongoing because of the range and variety of marijuana based products that are being used for kids of medical conditions so i would say that the purpose of epidiolex is for a very 
rare type of condition called Lennox Gusto, and I believe there's one other condition that they're Dravet. Dravet syndrome. And those are very severe forms of epilepsy uh, for, you know, normally individuals who don't respond to t- traditional medications for seizures or the, the medication stops working. And they've found for whatever reason that cannabis works. And so the approval of Epidiolex helps those individuals, but even at, in looking at um, the research that they, you know, did as part of the FDA approval process, it wasn't 100% effective for all of the people, no drug is, right, that, that were taking it. And so I think it gives us a glimmer of, you know, insight into where the federal government may be going as it relates to marijuana. Um, there's recently been... Um, an FAQ that's been issued that kind of indicates to us that the FDA is starting to see some benefit to cannabis and, you know, reading these FAQs that kind of indicates to us that they're saying, hey, go through our approval process. We'd love to get, you know, more cannabis based drugs out there. And there is one that's in um, the phase three approval that is a one to one medication, which means it's one part THC, equal parts THC to CBD. And it's from the same company that does um, Epidiolex and they, it's GW Pharmaceuticals, and they have a number of cannabis-based drugs that they are in various, um, you know, processes. So does that mean there's the potential? And so when you're talking about these FAQs, the FDA recently issued FAQs in advance of some regulatory action that they intend to take? Correct. Okay, and there's an upcoming. I know you mentioned an upcoming hearing in which they're going to hear from folks on this 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 issue. That's supposed to happen at the end of May, May thirty first. So, but what you're, what you read out of these FAQs is the potential FDA approval of medical marijuana that is not only th THC free, but which has THC and it and it being a one to one, so equal parts CBD and THC, which is again a really big shift. And we focus here on THC because again, that's the cannabinoid that creates the high, Mm -hmm. right? And so in terms of, you know, public perception and medical perception and all of that, it's really the, the naughtiness of, of cannabis really stems from that THC. And a a practical matter for school districts that it's one thing to administer CBD oils about THC and know that's going to keep a student as best as possible safe and Mm -hmm. able to attend as opposed to a student who, presumably with the THC component, may not that you know may not be getting the best and clearest right. education. I mean, that's going to be. I can see that just being a a real back and forth and community driven kind of perspective and educator driven perspective. Is it can the IEP team actually say that with the THC component in it, if we ever got there, that the students doing better in terms of receiving an education. I mean, there seems to be a lot of balancing that's going to have to come into play on that. I think there's a lot of balancing, but I think for the most part in, you know, the research that we've done and the people that we've spoken with and the families, um, because there are more and more families that are more readily sharing that their student uses cannabis, either at an IEP or behind the scenes. And, you know, for the most part, these students there isn't a high that you're seeing from these kids. There's, you know, for these epilepsy kids, the THC component is the the stop, right. the stop point for them in that seizure. And, um, you know, just seeing how quickly that medication works for the student is amazing, really. Um, and so it's, you know, I think that there's a lot of public perception and a, p- a lot of public education that needs to occur 
especially if, you know, we do get to a point where cannabis is completely moved to schedule five because there's so much, there's not a lot of understanding and there's a lot of misconception and misunderstanding, I think, as it relates to what medicinal cannabis is and how it can be used. And so a specific distinction with Epidiolex that we want to point out is that Epidiolex, though it was created to treat stu- or treat children with um, Lennox-Gastaut syndrome or Dravet syndrome to severe seizure disorders, there's nothing in the law or the FDA approval of Epidiolex that prevents doctors from writing an off-script prescription. And what we, mean, what we mean by that is that is writing it for something other than Lennox-Gastaut and Dravet syndrome. So there's, there's nothing that would prevent a doctor from writing a prescription for Epidiolex for a student with ADHD or a student with autism. And that's something that districts need to be aware of because when a student comes a parent comes to your district office with a prescription for Epidiolex and those provisions of the ed code regarding um, providing prescription medications at school are met, then the district must provide that Epidiolex to that student, whether they have epilepsy or whether it's been prescribed by a doctor well, for something else. You know, that makes me think of, Amy, you were talking about this these drugs that are in the pipeline potentially that are one-to-one THC, mm-hmm. CBD. To the extent there isn't clarity on that point as to administration of those, I do think that there there lingers there this risk that education officials have been concerned about for some time, which is a backdoor into right. a prescription or recommendation for marijuana with the THC in it that a student can get their hands on and say, nope, you have to let me come to school. That'll be interesting. Very helpful, Allie. And I think something else that districts are going to struggle with and probably already are struggling with is that, um, you know, we've said that marijuana is illegal under federal law. It doesn't have to be allowed at school um, or but with certain medications that are just CBD based, say you know that a child is is taking some sort of CBD gummy before coming to school. We you still may need to be wary in terms of if you're going to discipline that child just for the being under, you know that they're under the influence of, a, of marijuana because with CBD, with the no hallucinogenic effects, it's difficult to prove that that child is even under the influence of CBD. You know, we don't have a simple test yet that could determine that. So I think that's something that districts have to be wary of if they are determining that they're um, going to discipline for students that they they suspect are taking CBD um, before coming to school. It might be different if they find them with, it is different if they find them with possession of some sort of CBD gummy or something like that on campus. Right. Well, isn't there some degree of an easier dividing line there? It's one thing to have a student who we're aware of based upon a medical condition or, or a need uh, identified through the IEP process who's, who's taking something off school grounds that is CBD-based as opposed to students who have no medical or other reason to do so. I, I do think, as you're saying, Allie, unless or until they, they, they perfect this saliva test or other things they're talking about to measure THC, unless you actually visually see 
a student um, is impaired, and even at that point, where you have to go to the next level and say, well, is this a student that we're aware of due to their medical or IEP-driven condition they're, they're using? But I think you still want to measure it with impairment, smell being obviously a, a certain trigger point that uh, an assumption that maybe the students are the influence, which is even more complicated today by the fact that parents in California can lawfully and recreationally use at home mm-hmm. and their kids may be coming to school smelling like they've been the one consuming when they're when they're not. We're running up close on time. This is this is terribly interesting. Let's let's take it to where are we now in terms of potential pending legislation in California to take another run at this issue? So SB 1127 last year failed. I got to the governor's desk and he said, no, thanks. Uh, So now we have a new bill that's very similarly worded in terms of allowing students to take cannabis at school. It would allow um, a parent to come onto campus. Um, and what it would require is that the student provide um, the med- the recommendation, again, not a prescription, but a recommendation um, from a medical provider uh, to the district for that use. Um, and I believe that one's sitting in what house? So that has passed through the Senate, and now it's in the Assembly, pending in the Assembly. And I wouldn't be surprised if that, again, passed in the Assembly and went to the governor's desk because that is what happened last year. And we have a very different governor in terms of stances on marijuana. Mm-hmm. And is anything, to the extent you two have been able to take a look at the bill, is there anything that jumps out you uh, in terms of a difference between last year's SB 1127 and this year's SB 223? There wasn't anything that jumped out at me that was crazy different. There's, you know, a modification with regards to who can give the recommendation. Um, Previously, it just stated that um, they needed it from their primary care. Now it states that it's just a written medical recommendation. Um, The... The bill itself allows for a school board to adopt a policy which would allow a parent or guardian to administer. And that in and of itself is a little scary right now, again, with the state of the law federally, with it being illegal and for a governing board to come out and say, hey, we're allowing this to occur on our campus. Um, And so, you know, there's some implications there if this bill does pass and then if a school district does take an affirmative stance by passing a board policy or regulation. Well, and there's the other side of the coin, too, right? If ultimately the state of the law from OAH decisions under the IDEA is that, in fact, you need to provide this when it's established, it is necessary for the student to receive a FAPE, you, the, other, the other side is being found that you violate the law by not enacting a policy, at least on a case-by-case basis, mm-hmm. to, to accommodate these students and their needs. It's not a... I wish I had another good pop pun to, to use to describe it, but it's it, it, there's trouble on both sides. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, as in front of me, and I'll, I'm going to pose this and read this and then, then pose to you some closing thoughts, but I'm reading the governor's veto, Governor Brown's veto of, of SB 1127 last year, and he said, the bill is overly broad as it applies to all students instead of limited cases where a doctor recommends medical marijuana for a student in order to prevent or reduce the effects of a seizure. Generally, I remain concerned about the exposure of marijuana on youth and am dubious of its use for youth for all ailments. This bill goes too far, further than some research has, to allow use of medical marijuana for youth. 
I think we should pause before before going much further down this path. I know you guys indicated new governor, a different view and perspective uh, on this issue. But do you think, uh, in terms of what you know of the new bill, does it get to the issue of, of applying to all students as opposed to based on a medical a recommendation, uh, doctor's recommendation? The previous bill had that it was still a medical recommendation, and I think, you know, that statement for the governor. I've heard from individuals that, you know, are big proponents of marijuana as it's used for, you know, medicinally for students and for adults as well, you know, that there's this huge misunderstanding as to what cannabis is and its medicinal purposes. And again, I think when people think of cannabis, they think of the blunt or they think of, you know, bongs and that sort of thing. And medicinally, when they're getting a medicinal recommendation, the intent ideally is that, you know, they're doing things like sublingual drops, um, nasal sprays and inhalers and that sort of thing. It's not the student sitting there and vaping or smoking a joint. Um, and it's it should be medical in nature because it's comes with a medical recommendation. That being said, there are a number of doctors out there that may or may not hand out medical recommendations for, you know, people as young as two months old. And that could, you know, that calls into question whether or not that recommendation is valid, what is it for, why was it recommended? But I, I don't know if that's necessarily something for us to say this is or it isn't valid. I think that's up to a doctor. I don't know if we're really in that position to say whether or not they need a, that medicine. I don't think that we question medicine for other kids when it comes across our desk. So I would say if we can turn back to assuming SB223 is passed, and that type of use is not covered by SB 223, and we can turn to some of the federal cases, ADA in particular, to draw a distinction between use that's permitted under state law versus one that's still ultimately prohibited by federal law. I think we'd have a good argument to say if you're not within the confines of what the state ultimately approves. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just bring that up because I don't, I don't, I don't want everybody to panic just yet. But you're right; that's that's going to be an interesting issue, and a bridge that we'll have to cross at some point. Yeah, and ultimately, I mean, it's hard because two two three doesn't get us to all students being able to use cannabis. It's parents administering the cannabis to them. So arguably, a parent could come on campus and give, you know, a student with ADHD to epilepsy to autism their medicine, but the student, you know, in that context, couldn't be smoking their joint under 223 in the bathroom so yeah 223 also says that it can't be in the marijuana can't be in a smokeable smokeable or vapable form all right all right this has been a very interesting conversation um i've got a question for each of you as we as we wrap this up one is to both of you and you guys can pick how you want to respond to it but one does sb223 become law this year and if so assuming it does are there things that you would recommend uh, be changed or added to the legislation that you think in terms of your day-to-day legal practice working of districts in the area that you think would be helpful provisions to have included or excluded from the law before it is is signed signed by the governor i would like to see something about discipline and it, making it very clear that for students who have these medical recommendations that we're not looking at discipline. Um, I think that that would be, I mean, it's kind of implied. 
Um, but again, with the state of how 48900 is written and with cannabis still being federally illegal as a Schedule One drug, it's a little bit confusing and it would be nice to have that clarity. I think it puts districts in a tricky position to have to pass a policy or a regulation as it pertains to this because it really does put them out there and kind of puts them in a pretty naked position to say we're going to be allowing for this. And I think that there's usefulness in that and saying here's, you know, where we stand on this. I think it makes it tricky for federal funding. Um, And I would say that speaking from, you know, what we've heard from parents is that this still doesn't solve the problem. If you're speaking from a student side perspective for those students who are using medical cannabis, which is it allows for a parent or guardian to come onto campus and administer this. I think it's in their eyes, a step in the right direction, but you're still requiring a parent or guardian to be taking time off from their day or sitting in a parking lot waiting for an emergency seizure to occur. And so I think, again, they would see it as a step in the right direction. Does it fix the problem that they're hoping to address? I don't think it does. I mean, does that mean in terms of of fixing it from the parent administration angle that we need modifications to business and professions code or whatever other provisions apply to our nurses to make clear that by way of their licensure, they're not putting that at risk? To administer, is that the other part? Yeah, because right now this is strictly written for a parent or guardian to come onto campus. And it also states that the cannabis must be removed from the school site after administration. So in the case of the Rincon Valley case where the little girl needed the THC medication to stop a seizure, if that THC medication is not on campus, that's that's not going to help her. It needs to be available there. Um, And so that's something that that student's parents had actually said that this bill does not necessarily help us because we need that medication to be there in the case of a seizure. This does help, would help kids who need to take their CBD, you know, if they take CBD before school and then come onto campus and are okay with that. Um, But yeah, and I think the, the big missing piece here is the discipline piece. And Um, I think that there should be some sort of explicit carve-out for discipline here um, because... Which they could include in 48900 and 48915, too, Mm -hmm. because there's some language that parallels that. Yep. Or they could even just put in the bill, like, the provisions in 48900 do not apply to a student who is... Has a valid medical recommendation. Right, and is complying with this, our board policy. Thanks, guys. It's Thank been you. very enjoyable um, to ch- chat about this topic with both of you, um, and I appreciate you making the time. You are two of the foremost experts in this area in the state, and so um, I think this is a very helpful conversation. I, I will point out I'm finding myself chuckling um, over this a little bit, like over a big bag of Doritos and uh, the governor's veto message last year, and maybe he was being kind of funny too, talking about, exposure of marijuana on youth uh, that he was dubious about it. (laughs) There are so many good puns as it relates to marijuana. (laughs) Um, So thank you for this podcast. And uh, I would say I encourage our audience to, uh, you know, as need be, we we at Lausanne Smith have various resources in this area for the special education side of it, the student side of it. And, And both Allie and Amy and others in the firm are excellent uh, presenters, if you needed a training in this regard, 
Um, thank you so much for tuning in to Lozano Smith's podcast today. We encourage you to visit our podcast page at lozanosmith.com slash podcast to find links and additional details on some of the topics we discussed today. Also, make sure to, just to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Amy. Thanks, Allie. Thank you. Highly grateful to be here. If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the hosts of this episode or an attorney at any of our eight offices throughout California. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the information contained in this podcast is necessarily general, its application to a particular set of facts and circumstances may vary. For this reason, this podcast does not constitute legal advice. We recommend that you consult with your counsel prior to acting on the information you heard. Thank you.